This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here, as always, with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. It is Inauguration Week. It is the week before Sundance. It is, uh, would, an, under normal circumstances, be like the weekend of the SAG Awards. Time seems to be, like, folding in on itself in in some way. Um, <laughs> but for this year, it is, we're getting up to the very end of the voting period for both the SAG Awards, which have been moved to April, but the voting is still going to happen at the same time, uh, and the Golden Globes. So lots of people wanting to get out there and talk about their movies, which is great for us. So this week... We'll have Joanna's interview with Kingsley Benadir, one of the stars of One Night in Miami, and Richard's interview with Nicole Beharry, who, as we uh, talked about last week, was something of a surprise winner at the Gotham Awards for her really fantastic lead role in Miss Juneteenth, which we'll also talk about later on. Um, But first, we have little bits of news and also some awards to get into. And I wanted to start just very briefly with the Critics' Choice TV Awards nominations. Um, You might remember the Critics' Choice Awards also have movie awards. Those will be announced later. Um, The TV awards come first for, I don't know, some reason. And there's a lot of stuff that you would expect. You see Schitt's Creek, you see uh, Ozark, The Mandalorian, uh, The Crown, all these kind of Emmy stalwarts. But I thought it was interesting to see Lovecraft Country kind of pop up for the first time in an award show. I think it, it premiered too late for the Emmys this past year. And Joanna, you spoke to Jonathan Majors a few weeks ago about that show. So that was kind of an interesting show uh, of its strength. Anything else pop out to you guys about these? Katie, the biggest news of all. Emily in Paris is now an awards-nominated television <laughs> or award singular. I still haven't watched it. Is this the moment that I have to jump on board, or is it now? Now it's jumped the shark. It's not cool anymore because it got awards. Well, no, I think it's a very good reason. Like you know, like people watch movies when they get nominated for Oscars. I think that's um, true. Yeah. Now that Ashley Park is nominated for supporting actress and uh, from Emily in Paris, why not you know take a little trip uh, across the Atlantic? Um, a Paris. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it did not show up in any other categories. I. I'm pretty sure. So uh, I, I, my guess is that because Ashley Park is playing kind of the comic relief and she has a couple of moments where she sings beautifully. She's a musical theater actor. Uh, that's why she she got in there. But, yeah, it's fun to see, you know, a new class of, of shows like like Lovecraft and, and, and Emily in Paris in the mix. I guess this is where I have to be full of rage because I just realized The Flight Attendant was categorized as a comedy. And uh, Michelle Gomez, who is the fantastic villain on The Flight Attendant, didn't get nominated in Supporting Actress. So death to Emily in Paris. I've never watched it, but Michelle Gomez deserved better. Wow. Death to Emily in Paris. <laughs> Thus spake uh, Starting Wars. 
We also, I mean, there, there's been a lot of conversation already about small acts and where it would fall, you know, but here it is heavily represented in a TV, you know, TV critics choice context. Um, have, have, is it determined that it, it will only for any award only be considered television? Yes, it is not going to be eligible for film awards at all. So this okay. is this is where you're going to look for. I mean, the SAG Awards will be an interesting spot to look for it as well, and the Golden Globes. Yeah, I, I like I knew that was a majority. I just wasn't sure if like some awards body wanted to go rogue. Well, the, I mean, the LA Film Critics named Small Axe like collectively the best film. So with cr- critics make up their own rules, but I don't, exactly. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> but yeah, that's and, like, kind of in, where in the best movie made for television, which Small Axe is a considered a limited series. You have Bad Education and Sylvie's Love, which were. Movies not made yeah. for television. They were just, you know, sort of purchased at festivals or packaged with, you know, in, in Sylvie's Love's case, uh, Amazon Studios. Um, so I guess maybe that was kind of made for streaming, but well, maybe they bought it. I don't know. But anyway, it, 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 these lines keep getting blurred more and, and more. And Hamilton being in there, too, really tells you um, how, <laughs> right. how fuzzy this definition is. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that these awards are the first or, or at least the, are the last time that Hugh Grant and Chris Rock will be nominated in the same category? <laughs> <laughs> But it's only, only only the beginning more to come, or, only or more to come. the moment for yeah. them to collaborate finally. Yes, we've yeah. all been waiting for. Uh, also, nice to see how much the um, the plot against America showed up in these nominations. Like that's something I know I talked about a fair bit last year. It felt very underrepresented at the Emmys, but it's nice. I, I'm surprised it's eligible. Um, I'm a little fuzzy on what's eligible and what's not, but I was happy to see it there. Yeah, Winona Ryder, uh, among other nominations. Um, it, that's fun. I also liked seeing Glenn Turman for, uh, getting nominated for Supporting Actor in Limited Series for Fargo um, because he's so good in Ma Rainey's yes. Black Bottom. Um, mm-hmm. So he's got kind of this dual awardsy narrative happening, um, and that's so cool to watch for a guy who's you know been this sort of reliable character actor for so many years. Yeah. Um, well, the Critics' Choice Awards are happening on March 7th. Uh, as I mentioned, the uh, SAG Awards have been pushed back because of the Grammy Awards being pushed back. Obviously, things in Los Angeles are very tricky for having a live award show. Um, but we are getting to a point where we'll have award shows again. We just have to wait a little bit longer. Um, moving to talk about some movies that are out there to watch now. I wanted to just give a, a brief shout out to the movie Our Friend, which premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in 2019 as The Friend, I believe. I reviewed it. I feel like it, it went under the radar, even though it's got Jason Siegel, Casey Affleck, and Dakota Johnson in it. It is based on this true story about a man whose uh, fairly young wife was dying of cancer, and their friend came and moved in with them and basically helped them get through it. It's a really sad, uh, true story. Um, and I thought made a really effective movie. It's a bummer. I mean, it's, you know, you watch a, a cancer drama and you kind of know it's not going to, like, make you feel better than when you walked in, but it's kind of like like rings those tears out of you in a way that you feel a little bit, uh, you feel some catharsis at the end of it. Um, I think Casey Affleck is a complicated actor to talk about in a lot of ways, but I have generally liked his performances, uh, even though the entire existence of the I'm Still Here documentary infuriated me at the time and continues to infuriate people. Um, and I think he's really great in this. I think Jason Siegel, who has it, who, this is his first film since, um, oh my God, the David Foster Wallace one. What was that called? End of the like, tour. In the door, thank you. And he's really great in this too. So is Dakota Johnson. It's a it's a more limited role, but um, I just really like this movie. and I want people to check it out. It's a it's somehow getting lost in the scrum of award season, even though award season is so uh, muted this year. But I think it deserves a little bit more attention. Yeah, it has a really gentle kind of quality to it, and and I think the performances are really what sells it. I will say that, and not to be flippant, but. 
Dakota Johnson sure is the most beautiful, glowing woman dying of cancer. <laughs> I mean, like I know it's Like the side of Deborah Winger and, in terms yeah. of endearment. It's very, very yeah. old school dying of cancer uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there was a little bit of pushback against that fact when when the movie was at Toronto, because in the in the the book that it's based on, um, or I guess it was an article first. It's an Esquire and, article, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, it, the description of, of, of what this woman went through um, in her uh, final days is pretty wrenching and not at all glowing and, you know, photogenic, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, I, but, you know, look, that's it's not the first movie to give that kind of thing a little, you know, glow up, I guess. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I think you're totally right, Katie, that the performances are great and it just it it. It sounds like it could be a really just manipulative sort of tearjerker th- kind of thing. And it is a tearjerker, but it feels specific enough and, and real enough that it, it doesn't feel kind of maudlin or anything. Yeah. And it's directed by uh, Gabrielle Copperthwaite. She directed Blackfish, you might, the, you know, the documentary that kind of made everyone stop going to SeaWorld. And, and it makes me excited to see what she's going to do next. I like her kind of just taking on a story about people really grounding it in, in that and um, – I wanted to make more. So rent our friend. I believe it'll be on all the all the usual platforms. But speaking of where films are available, um, we talked a little bit last week about Miss Juneteenth. Uh, Richard's going to talk later to Nicole Beharie. And um, we had been kind of pondering, like, why suddenly it feels like people are talking about it beyond the Gotham Awards. And then someone tweeted at me that it has been airing on BET. It was the uh, it was their movie of the week, the week of Thanksgiving. Which I think is fantastic. Like it, it opened on, I think on June 19th, over the summer on Juneteenth. Um, but it's kind of becoming uh, more and more visible for people. You can rent it as well. I finally caught up with the movie, Joanna. I think you did too. Um, yeah. Kind of us preparing for Richard to do an interview, which is, uh, this is solidarity here on Little Goldman. We're all very prepared. <laughs> um, and I just really like this movie, like talking about human scaled stories. Like it's so specific and lived in. And Nicole Beharie's performance is obviously fantastic in the middle, but she's got all these great, like, characters and people surrounding her. It was so enveloping for me in, you know, this community in Fort Worth, a city I've never been to. Um, you know, it felt like a, not like a travelogue, but just like a, like enmeshing yourself in a world that you might not have known anything about. I really liked it. Joanna, what'd you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah, the immersive quality of it, but also, yeah, it reminded me of this, it's this genre of film where you're just like following a woman who's doing so much and trying so hard. And it's like, what else could go wrong thrown at her? Mm-hmm. Um, the most recent example I think that was really good was Support the Girls, which we talked a lot about Regina Hall's performance at the center of that. And I think Nicole Bahari has like a similar, just like really, there's a lot of um, quiet moments for her that uh, that she really sells. And, and I think is, you know, outside of the plot, it just adds a lot of depth to the whole thing. And I, I just think it's, um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. And it's, you know... It's a debut um, film, right, from Channing Godfrey Peoples. And so there's a lot of really fun debut films this year. Mm-hmm. And to think about, you know, what if this is their first offering, what they might do next, you know, because it's still like it's still like a little shaggy in a debut film kind of way. But like it just makes me excited for what's to come from this filmmaker. So, yeah. Yeah. And this movie is sourced really in in Shannon Godfrey Peoples' like own experience. And I think that's what literally lends it that air of immersiveness and thoroughness, you know. Uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, I'm glad that Miss Juneteenth seems to be one of the movies that wasn't really lost during COVID in a way that I kind of 
I feared it might be, but actually has kind of found its audience slowly with a kind of build to it, you know, aided by like BET and, and other things. Um, Cause yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting debut and a great opportunity for an actor who I think a lot of people have liked for a while from TV and, and from some films um, just really get a great showcase that now, you know, is getting awards recognition. Yeah. Yeah, I like your comparison to Sport. Sport Girls is also set in Texas, isn't it? I can't remember. Yes. Yeah. Because um, that's an interesting comparison that I hadn't thought of because, like, they are both about this, like, one woman just kind of, like, trying to get through her day. They're, you know, set within restaurants. Um, but Miss Juneteenth has this really fascinating extra added layer of just the kind of the culture and, you know, the Miss Juneteenth pageant and all these, you know, black women who really emphasize, like, education and training. And they're going to, like, she's sending her daughter to manners classes. And then the culture of this restaurant where she works, where it's, like, much more freewheeling and kind of a lot of people like against that level of pretension in those people and the tension between those two groups and how she wants to navigate between the two of them. Um, I just, I thought that was a fascinating extra element to it. Even when, like you were saying, Joanna, like there's some shagginess like you would see in a first film, but I think the the texture really makes up for it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited. Like I've been thinking long and hard um, <laughs> about how these filmmakers you know, get to get their films to have some stickiness and uh, in this in this really tough season. And yeah. so like targeted platforming it it be at BET is a really smart way to do it. We're we're gonna talk about another interesting move that some folks are making. But but you know, it's just it's a really challenging time. Like one night in Miami, we talked about a lot uh, last week, we've got an interview with Kingsley Benadir, but it had its official premiere and they did this like virtual premiere where Don Cheadle hosted and all this sort of stuff like that. And I was just like the challenge of eventizing your premiere of a film yeah. when it's premiering on Amazon Prime is 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 tough and they're trying. Man. Well, wasn't really it? Um, didn't it premiere on Friday on, on also Regina King's birthday? Like I kept getting this promoted tweet with her pouring a glass of red wine to celebrate her birthday <laughs> in the movie premiere, which like that's amazing. It got my attention. Like I paid. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess it worked. Yeah. Um, well, Joanna, UT is talking about other uh, interesting debut tactics. Um, Sundance is coming up. It starts next week. We'll talk about it next week. Um, we'll talk about some of the films that we're seeing. Um, but the interesting thing to me was last week, I think maybe like right after we finished recording, of course, is that um, Judas and the Black Messiah was added to the lineup. It's a Warner Brothers film. It's coming out on February 12th uh, on HBO Max and in theaters, uh, controversially. Maybe not as controversial as with Wonder Woman, but we'll see. But anyway, it being added to the Sundance lineup is interesting, not just because it's a studio movie, like they that's happened, that happens every now and then, like Get Out really famously premiered at Sundance, but because it will premiere at Sundance in January and then be eligible for Oscars in like a month, which has never happened before because usually the eligibility window is different. Um, so Joanna, what strikes you about what Warner Brothers is trying here? Well, something we've noticed and maybe talked about a little bit, but this is the, the most specific case I can think of is um, this idea of with with this season being so odd and with maybe some publicity resources being scarcer than they might otherwise be because uh, studios have had to go an entire year without, you know, their films and theaters. The awards teams we've noticed are really zeroing and seem to really be zeroing strategically on like one film or maybe just a few films. Um, and for Warner Brothers, it's Judas and the Black Messiah, which like most people haven't seen yet, which is really interesting. And like not even like it was a late thing for even critics to see uh, at the end of last year. So like, yeah, I don't think um, Richard, you might be able to say it better. Like, I don't think it was seen by like the New York Film Critics Circle in time to to have for awards. It was not eligible. They didn't do a qualifying run in 2020. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. But they are throwing like the full weight of their support behind it. As Katie mentioned off air, like Tenant isn't even on their FYC screening platform anymore. Like <laughs> I'm hoping by um, the time that this airs, maybe it'll be back because I still want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and like some of their other films that, you know, not to say they're not supportive of their other films, but it's just sort of like they feel like their smartest bet is to put all their chips in on Jews and the Black Messiah. Having just seen it last night, um, I think that's a really smart move. I think it's an incredible film. I really, really loved it. And I hope it gets a lot of buzz out of this like virtual Sundance as much as it can. But I just I just think that's interesting and not something we've seen in quite a concentrated way before. And I was wondering what you guys were thinking about this idea of like the Netflix strategy versus everyone else and, and what you're observing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a strategy that we see kind of every year in some way where, like, you have the late December release and you see all the buzz from everybody. But it, that's always a gamble because you're opening against Star Wars or, you know, whatever the big Christmas movies are. And this year we've got this period of January and February where the Academy thought maybe we'd try to open Dune or West Side Story and all those huge movies um, got out of the year entirely. So it's movies like Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, we talked about last week, the United States versus Billie Holiday, Malcolm and Marie. Um, probably a couple other, or Cherry, the Tom Holland movie, um, they're going to try to to jump in at the last minute and steal all the attention. And, I mean, given the way that the season has gone, like, it's still pretty quiet. Like, I think if you're an Academy member, you might only now be tuning in, and then Judas and the Black Messiah really does get all that attention. Yeah, I'll be curious to see. Warner Brothers also has um, The Little Things, the... Yeah, that's right. ...movie with Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. So it's three Oscar winners in a... In a, in a kind of serial killer thriller that has been around long enough that, like, Steven Spielberg was going to direct it at one point. Clint Eastwood was attached to it, I think. Wow. Um, I don't think it's getting the push for awards that, like, Judas is, certainly. But it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of handle that as, like, well, here's this other thing with, you know, a lot of great actors in it, um, or at least a lot of lauded actors in it. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, but Warner Brothers in terms of the big studios seems like really the I mean, I guess Universal has news of the world, but I don't know. And it Promising Young Woman is Focus, which is also Universal. Right. Yes, that's true. Um, and, and then and, Fox or Slate. Yeah. Yeah. And the reaction to Promising a Woman, I think, seemed like a lot of people decided to, you know, you know, eat the twenty dollars and 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 rent it this week, this yeah. past weekend, and and and, yeah. and um, the reaction seemed mostly positive. I would I would say, um, and but even if there was criticism of the film that I saw or heard from friends, and um, I think people definitely couldn't argue that um, or didn't argue that Carrie Mulligan was 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 great. You know, like she right. yeah. she was definitely like the plus for everyone. You know, no matter how they fell on the film, um, right? Exactly, and. Uh, What's interesting about like what films are, you know, having having watched this film, One Night in Miami and a couple other films, you know, we, we've talked about this idea of uh, like small acts, et cetera. You talk about trends in, in an award season. And I think this is a really one of our most interesting trends. And we're going to talk about it more when a little further down the road. One of, you know, our colleague Cassie DeCosta is going to come on and talk a little bit more in depth about this. But I was just thinking about like, what inspires this trend of like black activism or films that we're seeing this year? Obviously, we're in a black activist space in this past year because of um, BLM protests and George Floyd. But like, that's not Hollywood. How Hollywood, Hollywood's not that reactionary, right? It has to be like several years down the road. So like black activism space because of like, well, we're in activism space in general because of Trump, right? We're in a black activism space specifically because of like, 
the first wave of BLM with like Ferguson and everything like that. We're in a black exceptionalism space, I think, because of like partially Barack Obama. We're in a like a black commercialism space because Black Panther does well and Get Out does well. And then like, what do Ryan Coogler and Jordan Peele do with their success? They produce, they they lift up other filmmakers. You know, Ryan Coogler is a producer on Judas and the Black Messiah. And so it's just like an interesting like pattern of events to get us, you know, what does Regina King do? She does this. Like, it's an interesting number of, of factors that have gotten us here into a space that I think is so interesting. And for me, when we talk about the stickiness of films this year, there are plenty of good stories out there. But for me, what, in terms of what I'm thinking about, these are the films that are most on my mind. And I, I wonder if they will be the films that are most on Academy voters minds as well. Um, yeah. as, as we head into that phase of everything. So, yeah, we're very much out of an escapism, um, Oscar year. I think, I think no matter where it goes, it's going to wind up being films that are in conversation with the moment. Yeah. And like something like Mank, you know, is an activism film kind of, but it's also that Hollywood nostalgia film that I just don't think plays this year. I could be wrong. I'm always wrong about how much Hollywood loves rewarding itself for its own filmmaking uh, stories. But um, and Mank is about like power players trying to steal an election, basically. That's so, why. That's why I mean. It's, it's, it, no, no, no. It is an activism film. It just like is is an activism film wrapped in that. Like Trial of the Chicago Seven is an activism film, but yeah. like characters like Fred Hampton and Bobby Seale are like footnotes to this other thing. You know what I mean? And then you get into the story of Fred Hampton, and I'm like, that's a really interesting story. And like I said, we're going to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah further on, but the last thing I think I want to say about it for now is <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya is listed as number one, like in the, when the credits roll, it's Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, number one, Lakeith Stanfield, number two, but they're running Lakeith in, in lead and Daniel in supporting. And I, Daniel in supporting is a really strong entry. Uh, yeah. You know, I think, I think that split, Richard, have you seen Judas and the Black Messiah? I have, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, we'll we'll talk about it more when it's closer to coming out. I think that split is like fine. Like it's hard to not category fraud one way because it's really a two lead movie, but yeah. like it makes sense to me that it is like Lakeith Stanfield. It's like the story of the FBI informant and then Fred Hampton is a character who enters his life. So I, I, I can live with that split. No, no, I'm not upset about it. I'm just sort of like it makes for a really, really weighty entry into the supporting actor category in a way that I didn't think, you know, like we had some great people floating around there. Leslie Odom Jr. We talked about the conundrum of Chadwick Boseman and and where he's going to go last week and stuff like that. But like Daniel Kaluuya, I think is a real spoiler in that category. That's what I think. You know what I thought about? This is sort of a side note, but as I was watching, um, Catching up with Small Axe because I was thinking about how he's so great in Widows, Daniel Kaluuya, and like why I wish he'd been in Small Axe too. Maybe he was just too busy making this, but I wish he and Steve McQueen had worked together again. But we got to use the Black Messiah instead, maybe. I think he's phenomenal in this film. I think he's just really incredible. One of my favorite performances I've seen so far this year. So, and Lakeith is great too, obviously. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there, there's a vast supporting cast in that movie that's also terrific that we will get into. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> 
On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Should we talk about anything else before we um, introduce our interviews? You want to um, tell us what you and Kinkley Benadir talked about, Joanna? Yeah, I will just say a couple things. One, it's like a, an extreme pleasure to hear him talk about his thoughts on Malcolm X, because I, my understanding is that this is a role that Regina King had a little bit of trouble casting because a lot of people did not want to try to follow Denzel Washington. <laughs> can't, um, can't imagine why. <laughs> and I think Kingsley Benadir's approach, as we talked about last week, is so different and thoughtful. And he talked to me a bit about why, which I thought was really great. Um, notice how, uh, yeah, this is just a personal note. Notice how he talks about the female filmmakers and actresses that he's worked with. I was really on a personal note, dazzled by just like, I, it's not, it's not often you hear like a man in, in the film industry speak so reverently about every single woman that he has worked with in that way, in that, in that like just immense amounts of respect for Regina King. And then, and then I don't know if this is going to make it as the final cut. This is up to our producer, but I did talk to him a little bit about this, like British mystery show that I've seen him in Vera. So, and he talked about Brenda Blethyn and how amazing she is. So maybe me mentioning it will force our producer to keep that part into the interview. I was just wondering if you guys had gone deep on his, he has a a somewhat extensive British TV resume for someone as young as he is. Yeah. yeah. And before you, you joined us on the podcast, Joanna, this did start as a Brenda Blethyn podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Little gold Brenda's. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, all right, Joanna, let's hear your conversation with Kingsley Ben Adir. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting with me. I really, really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. I want to start by asking you, you know, your your depiction of Malcolm X. We we were talking about this on this podcast actually last week about how your depiction of Malcolm X is is unlike what we often see, you know, what we've seen from Denzel, what we've seen in footage. And um, I'm just curious, you know, sort of what your perception of Malcolm X as a figure was before you approached this and did it change um, after you approached this role? I mean, I, I knew who he was and I, I had the autobiography. It was on my shelf and I remember reading it years ago. And I, th- I think like lots of other people, you know, the archive footage and the stereo sort of typical images or the, you know, the, the famous imagery rather of Malcolm was really what I knew. But I feel like you read Kemp's script and you go, oh, this is interesting because it's kind of, it feels like a Malcolm that's vulnerable. It feels like a Malcolm. Well, it is. It's a Malcolm in private, you know, minus the, you know, the scene at the beginning when he's on the television. It's Malcolm with Betty and it's Malcolm, you know, in the crowd at the fight. And then it's Malcolm in the room with his friends. And as an actor, you go like, well, it's Regina King and it's Malcolm X, but it's Regina King and it's Malcolm X in a completely 
unique setting and a completely it, it just really feels it felt like a very very unique opportunity from the first read basically is what i'm saying yeah um and what i found really fascinating you know digging in i think this was really at the audition phase of my journey you know with this project i had three days to put 20 pages on tape for regina and she wanted the scene in the room from the moment we come back in off the roof all the way through to you know the table scene with with jim brown so all the bob dylan stuff and then she wanted the scene around the bed at the end so there was a lot of work to do and i was said to myself like what's what's going to be the most useful way to spend these three days like how am i what what's going to be the way that i can sort of best activate these scenes and try and grab Regina's attention, which is what I was kind of trying to do. And so I thought, let me just look into what was really going on for Malcolm at this time. And then, you know, my mind was really blown from there because the specificity of Kemp's writing is just awesome. And and what I what I learned, what I didn't know was that the monumental shifts and changes that were going on for Malcolm at this time, at least from my reading and my studying and my research anyway, Mm -hmm. suggested to me that this was really an awesome opportunity to explore, you know, Malcolm's vulnerability and his humanity in, in in a way that, you know, possibly we haven't seen. And I think his 12 year relationship with the nation of Islam and, you know, Elijah Muhammad, his, his father figure and mentor really was, was crumbling and you know it's it, certainly at least it I, th- I think Malcolm knew it was coming to an end or it was about to come to an end anyway and he was currently on a ban at this time for the chickens coming home to roost comment in the November um, so and he was at the sort of final stages of you know announcing that he was going to be starting a new organization and kind of moving away from the nation so you know but I feel like the idea that his life was in danger or was about to be in real danger was something that really helped me kind of tap into the stakes of this this film. And uh, so, yeah, I found out so much more. Than I, knew mm-hmm. back as well. I, st- I listened to Malcolm, and, you know, I had him on repeat for, for two and a half months. So, um, you know, I read as much as I could and... and uh, but yeah, does that answer your question? I I feel like yeah, I- it does. I think I think you were used to thinking of Malcolm X like in this idea of like brashness and boldness, and 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 you were playing a lot of um, anxiety and weariness. You know what I mean? Well, it's you just, yeah. you know you know he said he said to to Dick Gregory, dear friend of Malcolm's, that he around this time he felt weak and he felt hollow. And that no one knew the torments that he went through, which sort of broke my heart and 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 made me feel like, man, this guy had the weight of the world on his shoulders, and and there must have been times where he felt so alone and and, and was pr- probably suffering in silence. Um, he, you know, he 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 took it all on and he, what he was fighting for, and he really put his life on the line for for the freedom of black people in America, and and he was demanding that white America take a really hard look at themselves. And he was demanding that they show black people the respect they deserve, and he, you know, without asking. So a real hero in, on so many levels. But I think what's interesting about 
you know, heroism or, or true bravery is that it's feeling scared and still doing it. You know, it's like feeling the fear, feeling alone and still going out and, and, and facing the music. And, and that's what Malcolm did. So I wanted to explore what was interesting to me anyway about this piece. And I feel like Regina and I connected on this idea very, very early on that like Malcolm as a husband and as a father was going to be the much more interesting route here. And if we could find a way to get Malcolm on the screen where people could watch and, and recognize his humanity in them and understand that, you know, he was this this huge political figure and influential, you know, leader of, every, you know, people but he 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 was also you know a human being and he must have you know in this situation the pressure he was under must have cost him a lot and and I know it did because you know I've found out some incredible things Dick Gregory also described Malcolm as a as a sweet and, and bashful man and if he could hear us now he'd be embarrassed and <laughs> you know that the lacerating demagogue that we all know was really a, a, a character that he he slipped in and out of but definitely wasn't the sum total of who he was and his humor man I mean the guy was funny I I, <laughs> I had so much fun listening to him on repeat like a real comedian and and to watch him in Harlem is just joyous. I um I I was wondering sort of what you might have taken from this conversation about, you know, essentially black celebrity and 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 the obligations of celebrity to a cause, to a movement. What you might have personally taken out of the other side of this. Did those scenes like the Bob Dylan scene, like these other um conversations change or inform the way that you thought about your own way you move through the world? I mean, it sparks the question. I think that's what I, I loved about the script. And one of the, one of the reasons I was so excited about this movie was that conversation in the middle between Sam and Malcolm about responsibility and, and, and just found it really interesting and didn't really know whose side I was on at mm. any point. And uh, I think the fact that it's asking us to think about it is what's important and uh, I don't really know <sighs> I think deep down my heart tells me that Malcolm was right but then there's you know I think what's interesting is that it's really asking us all to look at the hypocrisy because there's a bit of Sam in all of us and what we're all doing and you know so I don't know I, I also feel like I also feel like this is really new for me you know this kind of level of press and to be in a project where there's this level of attention. I sort of being attached to Regina. She has, you know, huge weight and status in this business, and it's really kind of new. I, I, I'm, I'm finding it interesting watching how her and Leslie, in particular, sort of, you know, navigate in this space because they do have followings and they do have people who are listening, and 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 Aldis as well, and Ela. I'm sure to some extent. I'm not re on social media, so I don't really. I guess what I'm saying is I, I find it. I'm finding it difficult to even think of myself in that regard you know so like I, but I definitely feel in terms of my responsibility I don't know if this is just social or personal or like my you know me feeling like in order to acknowledge my you know gra the gratitude I have I, I, I just want to make sure that I'm trying to find the humanity in all of the characters I play and make sure the stories that I'm involved in moving forwards are 
you know, contributing in some way or like adding something or like, you know, even if that's just, you know, being involved in like, you know, good stories and real characters who are, you know, based on truth. And uh, and that doesn't that doesn't mean that everything you're, I'm in moving forward has to be sort of this, you know, politically or socially charged. I think you can you can create something beautiful, you know, just in two people in a supermarket, you know. I mean, as you say, you've been around for a while. What, you know, what was different about the approach to um, the acting in this project? Well, I've just never, I've just never played a character whose emotional undercurrent, you know, or the, the, the emotional turmoil was so deeply connected to the story. I mean, if you, if you, if Malcolm's emotional interior is not there, I'm not sure how effective this film could be you know that was definitely clear and i played you know i went i i made sure before i got to new orleans to start shooting that i ran every scene in that movie at least 150 times i tried everything and the only way that felt connected and and the only the only the route that felt interesting was exploring the vulnerability you know of Malcolm and and how dangerous the stakes were for him at this time. So I feel like I've never I've never played a part where the emotional backstory was so connected to the story arc. You know, I've never played a character that was that important to the overall. You know what I mean? So I like yeah, and I've yeah, played yeah. really good parts. I've played really interesting <laughs> parts, but they're often. Yeah you know, in support of someone else or, you know, pop up here and there for a few scenes. But I've never I've never played a character that was really the heart and center of something uh, I have on stage. But this was the first time really for me. So the responsibility was awesome. And like I enjoyed every second of it. And I, I guess, on you know, I've been wait, I've been auditioning for these kind of roles for years and got really close to some and this was one, you know, and then, you know, this was the first time I got to sort of explore transformational acting as well, to play someone who really existed. There's a different thing. You have to look at the voice. You have to look at the physicality, you know, so it was a, it was a completely different challenge. And the intensity of the process was, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I that deep sort of bubble of concentration that was required because I didn't have that much time as well. Regina cast me sort of just under two weeks before we started. So I had two weeks to prepare Malcolm and I just, I didn't have time to worry about Denzel or, you know, what people are going to think or who I just had to really crack on and just, you know, get into, um, you know, figuring out who Malcolm needed to be in his story. And so I think that really helped as well. It gave me an energy and like a drive. And um, so, yeah, it was different. And also I've never worked with anyone who understands acting process as well as Regina. So she just instinctively is coming from this deep, deep place of empathy. I, and her, her, her sensitivity around emotional performance I mean, it's remarkable, and uh, really looking back, I'm 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 so grateful and stunned. Like she, she set up an atmosphere where the focus was just performance. All all she wanted us guys to think about 
was our characters and performance. And that's very, very rare on a film set or a television set where it's so noisy and technical and there's a million things going on. There was such a calm and such a, like concentrated focus with everyone the crew like i mean the costume makeup everyone every day it was about trying to like get the most that we could out of these scenes and i'm really unique to be involved in something where you have 15 page scenes of talking just talking and uh and you know in filming you're doing coverage so you're doing those scenes all day and they're huge, big swings. So it required a kind of, we all needed to dance together. Like we all needed to be figuring it out and playing and bouncing off of each other in a way. I think you always want to be playing like that. But with these scenes, I mean, we really needed that. And Regina encouraged that and created that vibe where, you know, we were encouraged to to be fearless and make mistakes and and uh, we were just in a constant uh conversation or investigation really about you know how to best sort of like represent these men and and uh oh just just awesome like as an actor you couldn't dream of of uh you couldn't really i couldn't dream of a better (laughs) job you know like it was just it was just fantastic you know you've talked plenty about the fact that you were working on your performance as Barack Obama and the Comey rule at the same time that you were doing this project, you sort of had some Barack in your Malcolm and, and vice versa. But I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I've watched both the Comey rule and this film. There are actors in both of those projects that are doing something all great, but something that I would more closely call imitation. And that doesn't seem to me to be your approach that you are doing something that I would call embodiment, something, something different. And I'm just wondering if you consciously think about that, about like, you mentioned about like the voice about listening to Malcolm ad nauseum and stuff like that, but it it doesn't seem at the end of the day that that's really what's driving your performance. Oh, well, I appreciate you saying that. And I feel like, yeah, I didn't, I never, I don't think sort of impersonations or imitations are you know, not the particularly interesting route to go around because I feel like you always want to be, you always want to be operating from your truth. And I I think that imitation is, is something else, you know, and like, it's, I feel like, I feel like it's about essence really, isn't it? It's about essence. It's about trying to find an essence and, you know, the dialect and the costume and, and the rhythms and stuff, they're, they're going to do a lot of the work for you. So I don't know. I, I, having said that, I found listening and I found listening and repeating really helpful. I just mm. think like it's, it's a tricky one because I, I don't want this to sound arrogant at all. I, I really don't. But I feel like actors are either going to do imitations or they just understand instinctively that that's not interesting. And I think Regina was only ever going to pick people who who were ready to come in and try and embody and 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 not be sort of like sucked into to to the to the um doing an Im- imitation or whatever so i feel like that was i guess kind of down to regina's casting and you can feel it in your body particularly with barack like because because i didn't have you know because i didn't have the time I don't know I, I had I had a lot of help my dialect coach was on set and and 
I had a really strong sense of when it wasn't connected to me, mm. but I wanted to to go in and try and really nail the sound because I thought the sound for Barack was really gonna be the thing that um, you know people recognize. So anyway, they were two completely different process, like processes. I feel like the Comey rule was a much much smaller part, and mm-hmm. you know he served as a, a you know he was in it to to sort of serve as a function to set up Trump's entrance at the at the halfway point. So. It was more for me like a technical challenge of, you know, it was the first time that someone had given me an opportunity to to try and explore someone who actually existed. So I was really figuring it out as I was going along and uh, and was just sort of curious to see like how close I could get without doing an impersonation. Malcolm sort of happened very, very last minute and I'd already been cast as, you know, in the Comey rule. And that was just it was just an entirely different beast because... Mm it was really connecting the emotional undercurrent and the stakes of the real history to Kemp's words and Malcolm doesn't stop talking in that movie. So it, it was really much more of a, a, a fulfilling um, acting experience. I think it's um, so interesting. You mentioned um, like, you know, you, you've been around for a while, um, but you've never had as much sort of press scrutiny as you're having on this particular project. And it's only one of many that you had in 2020 high fidelity Comey rule. It was like just a huge year for you. And I've, I've uh, spoken to some of your contemporaries like Paul Mescal or Jonathan Majors, who also had like really big 2020s. And I'm always interested to know what it's like to sort of explode in that way in a pandemic year when you're not really like, yes, we're, we're recording a podcast right now, but you're not really in the sort of LA machinery in the same way that you might've been in a different year. And I was just wondering, you know, what would that was like for you? Do you know what it was really, I, I came back from New York after high fidelity and I just had the best time ever. And it was really chilled out schedule for me. I was like number five on the call sheet. I was doing like one scene a week and then I have two weeks off and then I come and do another couple of scenes. It was a really like beautiful, beautiful contained part. And it meant that I got to enjoy New York in such a deep way and fell in love with the city and all my boys came out and, you know, and my lady. So it was it was such a beautiful time. And I remember coming back in September and it was, you know, it was kind of chill. And then... I had a month or two off, and then Soulmates happened, The Comey Rule happened, uh, Love Life happened, and then One Night in Miami happened, all within the space of, like, three and a half months, between October and February. Like, it, it, these, all these jobs kind of just popped up, and it just so happens that they're all kind of coming out at the same time. You know, I don't know. I've never done, like, a, you know press on this kind of level i've never been i've never been in a movie just doing toronto and and venice and all those film festivals i've really been sort of learning learning about all this as we've been going along so yeah i barely knew what a film festival was i'm not (laughs) sure do you know like honestly like i knew what cans was i'd heard of these things and my agents are always saying going back and forth every year from them but I'd never but you know and I remember actually trespass against us I remember Michael and um Al and everyone uh you know going to Toronto but I was you know not invited because it's a small part so I I don't know any different really than (laughs) you know figuring out from home I, I definitely feel grateful to be at home I definitely feel like in the scale 
of who's got problems in the world and who's suffering and having a hard time like i'm all the way on the end of like everything is good so like i don't want to sort of complain or think about too much what this would have been like i'm sure there would have been a lot of sort of jet setting and flying around and going to festivals and lots of people patting you on the back and and telling you really nice things but it's really actually nice to to be doing this at home and just experiencing it period just to be connected to regina at this time in her career and just to be a small part of you know of her journey it's just awesome like i i feel very very you know going into something like this that because of what regina represents and her of, of course her huge talent but also huge status in this business people listen to her and people are watching her and and to be connected to that is amazing because you want to be in things that people see you know you want as many people as possible to see and i think because of regina and because of amazon you know and uh, lots of people are going to be watching this film it's going to be in everyone's living rooms on friday so you know on some level it would have been nice if the cinemas here were open and I could have gone with my boys and stuff, but it's all good. Like, it's, I, I, you know, uh, you know, there'll be, there'll be other ones, you know, just let's get, yeah. the, let's get, let's get the world back to, back to normal. And, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just grateful to be, to be a part of this, you know. 2020 uh, was so funny for, for me uh, interacting with your work because I was a huge high fidelity fan, you know, watch this film, watch the Comey rule. And then uh, at, at uh, Christmas time, I was sort of looking to take a break from things I have to watch. And so I was soliciting uh, suggestions from folks and someone was like, oh, you should, you should watch Vera. You should check it out. And I was watching and I was like, oh my gosh, he's here too. He's everywhere, everywhere this hey. year. <laughs> hey, you've been, you've been watching Vera? I watched some Vera, is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, Vera, is, is Vera, what channel What channel is it on in the States? Uh, you can get it on Amazon, I think through like the BritBox extension or something like that. Oh, so, cool, man. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was... That was, I tell you what, that was one of my first television jobs. And that boy, oh boy, was that. It was such an, was such an education and like a wonderful, like apprenticeship to, out of drama school to, to work with Brenda for those four years. And, you know, and just a nice, you know, small contained role where I got to learn about camera and, and, and be on set. And she was so encouraging and she used to give me so much like advice and she just filled me with confidence she was like you know you're not going to be here for long she's like you're going to go you're going to be in america soon we're not going to see you next year so she used to really like she <laughs> she was that. so good she was so good to me man and like uh, oh yeah well i'm glad i'm glad vera's on over there that's, that's cool i didn't know it was all right, I just have two more questions for you if you have time, if that's okay. Sure. Um, one was, what was it like for you um, to win the Gotham Award um, the other night? Oh, my God. I swear, I, I promise you now, I, when that nomination came through a couple of months ago, I was just so sort of touched to be a part of it. And I, I felt like there was some much younger... Um, you know, people who I was nominated with, I just, I hadn't put it to the back of my mind. I had put it out of my mind. I was not expecting it at all. And I was just, I genuinely, I've never experienced that kind of surprise, like really not expecting something. And I don't know why, maybe it was naive and stupid, well clearly. And so I drank 
you know, a bit too much. And I was just, you know, chilling and I was just kicking back in this hotel and trying to, I was just going to enjoy the night. And like, I was waiting for something else. And then when they said my name, I was just stunned and I didn't really know what to say. But I woke up the next day with a, a, a real headache. And, but, it was the be- <laughs> but it was the best headache that I've ever had. <laughs> it was the best headache that I've ever had. And uh, I, yeah, no, I feel honored to be, you know, thought of in, in that way. And I'm just, I, but honestly, I was just really like grateful to be nominated like that nomination just is such a good look and 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 it's such a respected organization and you know so yeah really cool excellent um yeah i think there is always something like your first award season and the other people who are new to awards in the same year you're new to awards i think there's going to be like a forever bond among all of you in terms of uh experiencing these things for the first time even in this weird 2020 2021 way that we're doing it so um (laughs) my last question for you i know i've i know a ton of people have asked you if you're sad about high fidelity not being renewed and you're like, obviously, yes, of course. Um, yes, I am sad. Um, so I was going to ask you something else, which is I loved that show. That was one of my favorite shows of last year. I thought it was incredible. So I was just Mm -hmm. wondering if you had like a fondest memory of working on the show. I mean, yeah, the whole thing, it was one of the most joyous times of my life, man. I like, I loved being on that show. I think really, you know, the scene on the roof, yeah. The scene on the roof where where I don't want to give the story away, but, you know, that moves into the staircase. We ran out. We The sun came up and we ran out of light and it, this, it just wasn't working. Like we, we didn't fu- we weren't finding the truth of the scene and the sun was coming up. So this time pressure was on us and then the sun came up. So, you know, there was no way we could continue. So what we did was we cut the scene halfway and I stormed off the roof into the into the a stairwell because of light. And then we had like 20 minutes to shoot that section and it just created this energy. And the, the, the explosion of emotion that came out of Zoe and, you know, was really just one of those examples of you can't always plan, you know, what's going to make you know, a scene work or not. It was really, it was really a, a valuable, real valuable lesson. And, and I think that scene really, I remember seeing it, with, I remember watching that scene with Zoe and I, I did feel really proud because we put so much thought and energy into trying to elevate that relationship to something that felt like real and grounded and truthful. Like we really, really thought about it and you know, we we were Zoe and I. We, we were like watching Edie Falco and and James Gandolfini and The Sopranos. We were watching all of their like, you know, their fam, their big scenes. You know, their big emotional scenes. And and we were sort of like just amazed by how grounded they. I mean, an actor. If you want to see an acting masterclass, season four, episode thirteen of The Sopranos, when <laughs> um, when when Edie's character, when uh, Carmela tells tony about furio i mean it sends shivers down my spine every time so yeah zoe and i we were on it and uh yeah i just feel really proud of of the show and and to watch her operate as an executive producer was just such an education and and we're all really good friends you know that's the you know one of the main things as well we were all so close and we hung out every weekend and we watched films and we went out and we drank together and we we chilled out together you know for like seven eight months so it was awesome Excellent. Well, thank you so much again for your time and for your great work. And um, I suspect this is going to be a long award season for you. So uh, 
we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you at other awards in the future. Uh, we shall see. Thanks. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for your time. Oh, thanks. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Richard, now we're going to hear your conversation with Nicole Beharry. As we talked about, she is really terrific in Miss Juneteenth. It's It, it feels in some ways like a very long-awaited uh, big moment for her. She's been working for such a long time. So uh, what what made you really want to get in this conversation with her? Well, I think we just wanted to catch her on the kind of this kind of awards-y upswing. Um, and I mean, we, were, we weren't able to interview her when the movie was you know initially out. Um, so I'm glad that, you know, one of the benefits of this more extended Oscar season is that um, it gives us a little more time to talk to some of the emerging uh, players on the scene. So she's definitely one of them. And uh, yeah, I just th- I think she's always such an interesting screen presence. And um, like I said earlier, it's just great to see her really as the lead of something um, and, and carry it so, so well. Yeah. Uh, well, let's listen to your conversation with Nicole Beharry. Well, I'm so happy to be on the line now with the star of Miss Juneteenth, Nicole Bahari. Nicole, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And I should also say congratulations. You're a Gotham Award winner. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to, I'm still, yeah, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> it did. It was really exciting. Um, I think that award show in particular is very good at, you know, finding um, smaller films uh, that aren't, Maybe they came out earlier in the year or whatever. So I was really glad that um, they recognized you for that. And it does feel like Miss Juneteenth kind of has been one of those little engines that could. I mean, it premiered a year ago at Sundance, came out in June, and just seems to have kind of been gathering an audience over the course of that whole year. What's your experience been like with it? I, I know that BET aired it. That probably changed or, or you know brought a lot more people to the film. Um, has it felt that way to you? Ah, I suppose. I mean, there are some things that we couldn't have orchestrated that the, the, the timing this year with the sort of it being the first Juneteenth in my lifetime that people are talking about it, um, mm-hmm. nationally, you know, um, and Juneteenth for anyone who's listening is two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, the enslaved African-Americans in Gabelson, Texas were informed that, that they had in fact been, you know, freed and that they could, you know, leave and, and, and sort of start a new life. And that is commemorated on June 19th. It's a big holiday in Texas and different pockets and different communities in the South, um, primarily celebrated by African-Americans, but it should be something that is in the sort of collective national consciousness. Right. So this yeah. was the first time that that happened. And I, I think that was a big 
a big moment. And again, bittersweet because it was on the heels and probably because of the passing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor amongst many others um, that people are sort of like reckoning with. And so that's, that's the way it came out. And so it's, it's like a bittersweet thing is I, I, I can't even really, it's almost like I wish that weren't the reality, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but because it is, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of s- stuck. Um, and it was more resonant than I think it would have been a- any other year. Also, I think that, you know, not having movie theaters open kind of made the, the field in which you, you work and you like to talk about, and you guys discuss on this, on this podcast, uh, more democratic, you know, mm-hmm. um, people like our little film doesn't have a budget to sort of do all the campaigning and send all the stuff, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we just sort of made the movie labor of love, whatever. I love it. I'm down there in Texas in the sweltering heat. Um, and then critics or, you know, people are just having a blast on Twitter or whatever. And then people are like, Hey, maybe we should watch this thing. But it wasn't, it definitely wasn't something that we've been sort of working on to happen. So it's just, uh, it's kind of amazing, but also for me, I'm just kind of in shock. Um, cause again, I just thought I was tucking away to Texas to just help Channing, our fantastic director, create her love letter to her community. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I think that's a testament to the film's quality and, and to your performance and, and, you know, Channing's work. Also something that people are really seem to be hooking into is kind of what you've mentioned, the, the specificity of it, you know, this Fort Worth, Texas setting, the history there, the community there. Um, I know you're from the South to some extent. I mean, you were born in Florida. You know, you went to school in South Carolina. Did you did you have a connection with any of the stuff that we see in this film? I mean, did it or did you kind of have to learn it for the project? I had to learn some of it. You know, I had the the <laughs> I had the fortune to be able to work with Kendrick Sampson, who also, by the way, during the time that the film came out, was uh, you know heading up protest and organizing for um, Black Lives Matter. He's actually a native Texan and sort of was helping to show me the ropes. And I went down there a little bit early to, to, to work on the, the, uh, the dialect and sort of linger in the bar and sort of take in all the different people and, and the textures of it. Because Channing let me know that it, it was so specific to her community. And America's, I mean, this, this, this country is like so many little mini countries, right? Yeah. Like wrapped into one. There's like all these different versions of it. So to imagine that like my version of, you know, the pocket of Georgia that I lived in or the pockets of South Carolina that I lived in, even within that one state, there's like nine different dialects, depending on if you're low country or if you're in Colombia or, you're, you know. So I came in and if I'm being honest, I think I maybe took a little bit of it for granted. Like, I know what this is. And it was like, mm-hmm. no, you actually, you actually have no idea. Um, which was fantastic to have a director and an environment inform so much and know so much more about it than you do. So you can sort of trust and go for the ride, you know? Um, yeah. Oftentimes, I you know show up to sets and feel the responsibility of being like, just knowing more sometimes than than the director as like the like person of color. You sort of have to bring in your own like anthropological <laughs> yeah. 
understanding of things. And she was like, no, I know what this is. This is, this is this person. I want you to meet this person. Yeah. You know, you, you said, you, know, you described this as Channing's kind of love letter to her community and, 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 you know, she's a first time feature director. Mm-hmm. What are the kind of responsibilities that you feel as an actor, as the lead actor in a project like that? I mean, there's so much riding on it, you know, for the filmmaker and maybe right. for the community too. Um, did you feel that pressure when you, when you were making the film? I don't know, just signing up to do anyone's work. is like, uh, you know, it's like a service that you're, you're providing. So there is the responsibility. I, I, I mean, I try not to get ahead of myself. Like, oh, this is her, you know, her first film. I'm, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to screw anything that I do up. You know? right. So I just sort of, I think the thing is because at the time, you know, people didn't necessarily know her work and like, I, I loved her script, but there may have been people on my team that were like, I don't know, you know, all, all, all that kind of stuff. For me, it's like, I want people to see what I, what I saw in it. You know what I mean? To like feel mm-hmm. the things that I think are, are gems in the story, you know? And I think that she's done a fantastic job with her first film, like bringing such a texture and like such a specific voice to, to, to the table. Um, and so I just wanted to sort of be a part of that. Uh, didn't know that it was going to give me this huge gift of sort of, I love, um, you know, like Cassavetti's films and like uh, Tarkovsky, Andre Tarkovsky. And uh, there's like a quietness and a real like detail oriented nuance thing that I would always see, but I'd never really been a part of as an actor, right? Never really had that sort of spaciousness while creating. And I didn't, I didn't realize in signing up for it, it was sort of like a gift that happened that I was going to get like moments to think, you know, and those sort of like quiet moments that I love when I see movies, when I watch, um, Gina Rollins or, or, you know, just like amazing, crazy scenes, um, from some of my favorite films. So yeah, it gave me a moment to just sort of experience that as an actor. There's a real naturalism to it. You know, it's not melodrama at all. It's really just, I, it's such a kind of cliched phrase that the, in film criticism, but it's it's very lived in, you know. Um, yeah. Did you have that feeling? I mean, because I always wonder with actors and filmmakers, like, is that like really created? Like, do you have to work hard to make it seem natural or does it just kind of flow in, in the process? I think part of what you're saying there is like the thing that I loved about the script and and, and also my experience in, in, in doing it was that like, this is about the people that, you sort of don't see a lot of that, you know, some people would even avert their eyes from because it's so, I I, I kind of, it's akin to like folk music, right? It's like, kind of like you said, it's lived in, it's local, it's love, it's longing. It's like all those things, right? Like folk music is that kind of thing. And it can be really, um, it can feel really naked because it's just a guitar and like a voice and usually a voice without like a lot of the accoutrement is what you're talking about. Right. So even with this, like as an actress, I did have, I had some moments of like, Oh man, I'm really going to be out here. And almost every frame of this bad boy with like no mascara, (laughs) (laughs) no foundation and it's hot. And my pores are looking massive, you know, like there's all that stupid, that's all that stuff that sort of comes up, but that's what the movie is. So I think that that's what you're, you know, that's kind of what people are feeling too. It's like so bare, you can't hide 
behind anything almost. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, that naturalness obviously is in the performance too. I'm, I'm curious with turquoise, what about her did you relate to, if anything? I mean, is there commonality between the character and yourself? I relate. I mean, I, I was raised by a single mom uh, once my parents got divorced. So I have a lot of love for that and wanted to mm-hmm. honor that. And yeah, I mean, I suppose it's sort of, you know, hearkening back to your heyday to, you know, happier times to a moment in your life that you're like, am I done? Am I, you know, I definitely have questions even about this career. Does it make sense to keep doing this? You know, like, where am I putting my energy and my faith? In Turquoise's case, it's in her daughter, me. I was sort of like even questioning those things before going to set, you know, before uh, starting this job. So we always find little things, but as, as, as far as like, the specifics of her life, not necessarily. Um, but there, there was enough to sort of anchor, anchor into my sister is, um, I guess I can share this. My sister is a, a teacher and she had a child at, at a young age. And, you know, a lot of people sort of gave up on her in ways. And, you know, she's become like one of the best teachers in Georgia and she's like running the speech school and all this stuff. But at the time she was definitely dealing with feeling discarded, you know? And I think this is also kind of for her, for me in a way, like I was watching you. I love you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nice. I, I, I like that. You know, I think this movie and Turquoise's arc in the movie is about a lot. There's a lot going on. Um, but one of the things that I kind of picked up on most keenly, I guess, was was this twin look at ambition. You know, Kai's kind of just coming into her young adulthood. Um, mm. Turquoise feeling, you know, like you said, maybe her heyday has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, like where this movie and this year kind of finds you in your ambition. I mean, do you still feel like the the kid at theater school, like eager to take on the world or how are you finding your sort of approach to, to acting at the moment? I get, I mean, I'm honestly, I'm like, what is the world right now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. What is this? What is, which is actually fertile ground for creating things in a way. If you're, the, uh, that's another thing I think I discovered in the last, probably post turquoise. Not, I, I don't think I knew this while I was working on her so much, but like, it's really the questions that you're asking yourself, right? Um, that opens up a character. Like, you don't necessarily get the answers, and that kind of happens in this this whole this like life thing. I would love to be doing more. Streaming is affording all of us so many more opportunities. Uh, there's mm-hmm. just like you know, back in the day, I don't know how old you are, but there was like, you know, a few channels, a few cable channels, a few movies out. Now there's like thousands and thousands of things to watch and there's so much content. So, you know, maybe I'll be able to stretch or work with some, some fantastic um, directors and do, do something a little different. I do have um, some other shit <laughs> that I'd like to share with y'all. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're, we're you know eager to I see mean? it. Yeah. I don't know if you can say that. Can I, is, is that going to be? Oh, um, yeah, we're, yeah. Okay. All no right. Yeah, I have here. some other things that like, you know, I love to share with y'all. There's, there, there, there's definitely more going on. Um, so yes, but also, you know, just kind of watching this thing. This is, we're, we're in a fascinating time. This is a 
interesting time. I really think a bunch of fantastic work is going to come out of this. People are at home writing and daydreaming and spending more time in their minds and thinking things up than ever before. So we'll see. Have you, have you found yourself being creative, you know, in, in quarantine or? Oh yeah, for sure. I, I've, I've, I've been writing, uh, collaborating with some people and then like, you know, in, in, in the film way, but also like working on some solo work for theater and I've grown a garden and learning to play the guitar. And wow. <laughs> impressive. <laughs> I think I read half a book, so. Oh, uh, no, but you've been busy doing this podcast. Like this That's true. You can, yeah, I haven't, I haven't been doing anything like that, you know, constructive yeah. in yeah. that way. Um, I have worked shot some things. I'm not sure if I can talk about them. So I, I, sure. I won't, I won't name them, but that's also been really interesting. So yeah, I am, I am working, even working during this time is, 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 it's a challenge. If I'm going to be honest, it's kind of challenging. There's so many other things to think about, you know, it's like you're doing your work, but you're also thinking about your safety and things that you would do differently. I had to, I had to like crawl on the floor and I was like, wait, everyone's coming in from outside with their boots and I have to crawl on this floor. That's probably not going to, you know, in like a normal world, yeah. I would just do it. And you're like, wait, I want, I want the floor to be sanitized. <laughs> like, yeah. you would never have thought about that before, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's changed so much thinking about it. And I'm, I'm, I'll be curious to see how the old ways kind of meld with the new ones, you know, once everyone's vaccinated and, and uh, we can return to quote unquote normal, whatever mm-hmm. that is. You know, with not just with COVID, but obviously there has been so much political upheaval and stress and worry this year. Um, well, I guess last year and now into this year, I'm, I'm curious as you, you know, write and think about uh, other projects in the future, do you feel like any increased interest, I guess, in, 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 in kind of channeling any of that political stuff into your work? I mean, I've talked to some actors who were like, it's really hard for me to even imagine doing something that doesn't have a political point to it these days. Um, mm. Does that resonate with you at all? Uh, to just be short. I mean, I think everything I've done has always had a little bit of something going on anyway. That's just kind of the thing, um, whether it's like sexual addiction or the taboos, you know, in the black community with sexuality or, you know, integration with 42, like there's always something I'm, 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 I think I'm just drawn to those sort of things, um, without being on the nose about it. If, if that makes sense, like they're always the themes so, yeah, I think we have a responsibility, but also we want people to enjoy it, you know, to uh, actually yeah. want to watch whatever it is that we were making. So I think that that's a fine line. Um, there's so much interesting stuff coming out that I've been seeing that like, you know, like the I May Destroy Yous, uh, like like that, like talk about things, but then still it's such an interesting format or uh, the way that they depict all the different characters. It was like so much gray that I really appreciate. So if we're going to do that, I just hope that we can find interesting ways for people to assimilate whatever we're taking in. So it's not like you're being beaten over the head, you know, because we're taking in a lot right now in real life. So I get the escapism as well. Um yeah, you don't really want something that's going to feel like a lecture, you know, or yeah, or, yeah. you know, you don't want a lecture. It's like we it's, it's it's a lot. But I do think that there's a responsibility to sort of, if nothing else, shared humanity and letting and like letting people into what's going on in other people's world is is is, is, is a big deal to me. 
Well, and I, and I feel like Miss Juneteenth is exactly that. You know, it, it, it's not an overtly political film, but there is a political dimension in just that it's about what it's about and it's not sort of concerned with lecturing or, or, or trying to sort of point towards some thing. But it still does, you know, because it, 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 it just so thoroughly immerses us. Well, it's it's in the environment of like struggle and there are people that are kind of living in like a version of, you know, poverty. I think mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I said this to you, but um, I think in about a week, the eviction moratorium is going to be lifted. Right. Yes. And I've, I've been thinking about that kind of thing. Like I keep thinking there are certain stories that are just not so glamorous and a, a, a lot of the stories that like I even enjoy are about a sort of black exceptionalism or like American exceptionalism. This isn't that. This is someone who's maybe even trying to get into that space, turquoise, through like the pageant. Obviously it's about, it's not about beauty. This is about a, a scholarship. It's about a scholastic um, endeavor. It's about access. Right. So without having this huge conversation about like not having a good school system or, you know, or or, you know, um, a decent hourly wage, we're just seeing the person survive within this structure. And I think that's sort of enough, giving all the facts and the numbers and the percentages, um, people can feel it and be like, ah, okay, you know, maybe there's someone that I pass by every day. That that I haven't given like a second glance to. and, And that's that's kind of who she is. So it's, it's an honor to tell that story. Yeah. And I, and I think that what you said is exactly right, that, that it's a film that depicts people in a very sober kind of straightforward way, um, who often aren't depicted on film. And I think that what the, what the film does interestingly is it, is it's about people trying to some extent to transcend their circumstances in terms of opportunity and finances and all that. But the movie isn't sort of condemning of the way they live currently, you know, mm-hmm. exactly. it just, you know, it, it, it contains both of those things that, uh, in a way that it's, they're not contradictions. They're just sort of are part of life. I mean, it really. Yeah. And also how someone can be, and I think this is what everyone can like relate to it's like even within your own community your own race there can still be like a set apartness right where you're like Mm -hmm. not accepted by some (laughs) and where there are like standards of beauty or or, like religious standards that don't necessarily work for you but you have to exist in those spaces and like that's your community so I, I feel like that's that's really interesting because oftentimes you know you have like a church scene in a in in like a, a movie or something specifically a black movie and it's like the protagonist is usually with it (laughs) or she's Mm -hmm. like going to god and she's like yeah like this is the place that she feels safe it's like actually there's so many places even within her community that she doesn't feel safe you know um or that aren't like giving her the things that she needs um and then there's like the love story that could be happening and uh with the with with the two love interests she could in a standard movie I think she would have chosen one of the guys and in this one it's like it's actually a love story about a lady and her daughter or maybe a lady and herself I don't know you know um yeah that she like chooses something a little different so it's like interesting that Channing was able to write something again all these things are happening it's like economic stability the emancipation (laughs) like you know slavery history uh you know you know, black beauty without a whole bunch of gloss. There's, there's like a bunch of things happening, but on the surface, it's just a lady 
trying to pay her bills and provide a better life for her, for her daughter. So yeah, it's kind of cool. It is cool. And, you know, as the Gotham Awards have recently uh, attested, as, as have many others, you're, you're really great in it. And it, it feels like a really cool opportunity to see you really carry a movie. And, and, you know, I, I just hope we get more of it. I can't wait to, <laughs> to, to see whatever you have next. But in the meantime, we are sort of stuck in, you know, we're still mostly stuck indoors and whatnot. Um, you mentioned I May Destroy You. Um, is there anything else that you that kind of stands out for you in recent memory of something that really inspired you or or just kind of hooked you uh, that you've watched? Um, I watched, is it Orthodox or Unorthodox? I can't remember. Unorthodox, I think. Yeah. Oh, yo, yo. So good. So juicy. Right. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Loved it. Love that. Um I have to confess, I've been watching a lot of of reality shows. Uh, Same. (laughs) Very much same. Reality competitions. Like, I love love watching artists make things. So whether it's like Chopped or um, the runway shows, like, I'm forgetting the names of it, but like Best in Fashion and all that. Mm -hmm. I'm so embarrassed, but I love it. And I'm literally like... I can't binge it because I'm looking forward to what they're going to do next week or next, next time yeah, I watch yeah. it. Oh, 40 year old version was so good. And Rada, it's so, it's like, like this was another full circle moment as I remember doing like play readings, her, her plays, reading them at like, the, at like the public theater in like a room somewhere in front of like the, um, the lit department. And then seeing her, I remember talking about making a movie and she's like, I'm going to be in it and all this stuff. And, you know, sort of still figuring out what it's going to be and then finally seeing it. I mean, it was one of the most refreshing things I've seen and just like original and daring and funny because I just like we all need to laugh. It was so funny. So good. Yeah. And and, and I think that actually the 40 year old version and Miss Juneteenth have something in common and that they capture a sense of place so well. Like that movie is so mm-hmm. New York. Yes, know? it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Um, if you like shows about people making things, there is a, a show about glass blowers on Netflix <laughs> called, I think, Blown Away. That's really good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just fascinating to watch them I'm do gonna it. I'm going to be um, in so much trouble. I'm going to be in so much trouble. Now you've given me another one. My, my friend... Um, one of my friends is like a big reality TV watcher and she, she, she gave me, so it's so bad and good. Uh, married at first sight. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Like just human beings are, and I, you know, I think, I think probably because I'm more cooped up than normal. I have a lot of social interaction in my real life, you know, in my non Corona uh, quarantining life. So yeah. maybe like meeting new people, <laughs> on reality because I never used yeah. to watch reality shows and now I'm like oh, why am I doing this maybe it's meeting new people I don't know I don't know I don't know I think so I th- I have felt that way myself where you're just like I, I watch that show below deck and I'm just like oh look at these people on a yacht and, and I kind of almost imagine I am you know <laughs> while I'm on my couch for the yeah because there's something that there's something predictable about some of the scripted stuff um which yeah. is something I I think is I think because of all the reality we have to sort of we have to like event you know change the way that we're creating as well like be more intimate and maybe up our games and that's i think why something like um i may destroy you stands out to me because like i didn't know what i was going to get every episode you know what i mean like you don't know what's going to happen or like the the format of it because reality like we're really those people really put themselves out there in an interesting way that i think audiences now we expect to see that kind of intimacy from performances and 
and storytelling. Yeah, well, if anyone hasn't seen it who's just listened to this, please do watch Miss Juneteenth. It does have that kind of inviting, meeting new people kind of feeling to it. Um, and, and once again, Nicole, terrific in it. Thank you again for speaking with us. Thank we really so appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. This is such a cool show. All the best. Oh, thank you. Yeah, all right, you too. That does it for this week's show. You can find us on VanityFair.com and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylaws. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And the award for best song from Katie Rich's upcoming Les Mis sequel goes to Katie Rich. Death to Emily in Paris. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.